everyone, and welcome back to Traffic Jam. I'm Isabel, and I'm here with Georgia. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to our third episode. Today, we have some great topics we're excited to discuss. We're going to look into media and child sexualization. We're going to discuss some research on pedophilia and pornography addiction. And to say the least, this actually might be our most interesting episode to date. Be sure to stick around to the end, and if you haven't, be sure to follow Moms with Security Global Outreach on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to keep up with everything the organization is doing to combat human trafficking. Also, send us questions and comments that we can discuss on this podcast. We love to hear from you guys. Um, and before we get into all those topics that Georgia was just mentioning, you went to a fun event this past week. Do you want to go ahead and share with all of us? Yes. So this past week, I was able to go to the Moms and Security Global Outreach third annual golf outing. We call it playing for a cause. I don't know if anybody's going to get that little golf pun in there, but sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I've never golfed. <laughs> so I didn't until you guys explained it to me. Okay. Okay. Well, anyway, it was at this beautiful Crystal Springs Resort. It's in North New Jersey. It's covered with mountains. You have these beautiful scenes, beautiful people, beautiful cause. Everything about that day was beautiful. I have always wanted to go to New Jersey. It's like my bucket list state to go to. So I was so sad that I was not able to make it this year. Okay, so I live on the eastern side of Pennsylvania, and I have never heard anybody say that they want to go to New Jersey. <laughs> Can you explain why? I have seen pictures that people post um, on like family vacations. Do they go to the East Coast on New Jersey, and it looks the beaches look so gorgeous. So ever since like I saw those, I was like, I have to go there. <laughs> I thought it was going to be because of the Jersey Shore. You were just a super fan growing up. Oh, you know, my favorite reality TV show. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I've never seen that show. It's a shame. No. That's a shame. But if you do go to New Jersey, make sure you get some Italian food because they have great food over there. I will say that. Well, next year. Yes, we actually have that same venue booked for May 9th of next year. It's people from the security industry, people in law enforcement, retired military, other nonprofits who are all in this big fight against human trafficking and exploitation. And we all just come together with all of these different backgrounds and we share this goal to end human trafficking in the U.S. and across the globe. It's honestly so interesting to see all the different people there. And then I got to speak to a good handful of them. I tried to break some security glass, which didn't really go that way. I will try to get the video and put it on our page as well. Definitely. I saw that video of you trying to break the glass. And the first thing I thought of, I was like, oh, she's a softball player. Guilty as charged. Yep. Everybody there did say I had the best swing. So I got to give myself some credit, even though I couldn't get that glass to crack. <laughs> Maybe next year. Next year, I will be the first one to break it. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, everybody, mark it on your calendar, May 9th of next year. We want to try to get as many people signed up as possible. Uh, there's golfing. Uh, we do raffles. 
um, serve food. It's a lot. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yes, the food was honestly one of the best parts about being there. Um, but one critique I do have is there were not enough ladies there. So girls, if you're out there and you're listening and you're in the area or if you just want to book a flight to support a great cause, I think they were renting golf clubs there. Please don't quote me on that. But I think you can't even just rent a pair of clubs if you don't want to bring them with you or they don't fly well. But we need to get some girls out there. I'm going to participate next year. So. All right, let's go. Let's get on that golf course. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience. And again, as I know, it's a little ways away. But again, as the date gets closer, we'll be posting it on our social media. If you follow us, you won't miss it. Yes, please give us a follow, like our content, share it with your friends, because we would just want to blow up and share this great podcast with everybody. And with that, let's get into our content for today. All right. So quickly, I want to say that Isabel and I have obviously talked about how we want to structure this podcast. This is only our third episode. So we're going to try something a little different this week where I'm going to kind of lead the first section. And then Isabel is going to take the reins and move us further into the discussion. So if we like this flow and we're grooving well. We'll keep doing it. If you guys out there hate it, please let us know. <laughs> we're trying to figure out our groove. All right. So now getting into the media and child sexualization. I'm going to preface this by saying I did my absolute best to do this research without typing anything into Google that was going to put me on some type of government list. We don't need to go into any dark web actions just to have a, a decent conversation here. <laughs> the internet is a dangerous place. Oh my God. Yeah. I was, I was a little nervous. I can't lie. Um, so I thought the best place to start this discussion would be to break down pedophilia, which is the sexual attraction towards prepubescent children. And I bring this up because when we discuss the sexualization of children, there's going to be people who just say pedophiles are the ones who are attracted to children. They're obviously the ones who are abusing and buying children. So if we identify and detain pedophiles, all this is going to end, right? Right. Like it's that, you know, stereotypical image of that, you know, the creepy old man. You know the image that I'm, what I'm saying? Oh my God. Yeah. Creepy old man, white van. But what we plan to focus on in this episode is a more uh, subtle form of pedophilia that runs through society um, and like other concerns related to child exploitation. Yes, exactly. So according to some studies, pedophilia is considered to have a place on the spectrum of human sexual preference. It's not necessarily classified as a mental disorder or anything like that, which might surprise some people. I know it surprised me. And this really doesn't even feel right to say it's going to turn stomachs. But I think in order for this conversation to be efficient, we need to really discuss what pedophilia is. And I need to point out that people who have pedophilia should not automatically be lumped into the criminals who are actually sexually assaulting children. It's the action of sexually assaulting a child that makes a person a criminal or sexually assaulting anybody doesn't necessarily even qualify them as a pedophile, though. 
Shockingly, research suggests that only about 50% of people who sexually abuse children have pedophilia. Only 50? So why are the other half of assaulters abusing children? Research suggests that the 50% of people who abuse children who show no signs of sexual attraction to them tend to lack the social skills that are necessary to build and maintain emotional and sexual connections of people who are more in their age range. So basically, they can't get it on their own, so they're preying on children who are available to them. I also want to say it's extremely important to recognize that the populations referred to in these studies include actual sex offenders and ones who were reliant on self-reporting and cooperation with researchers. So I'm not entirely sure how much weight we can apply to these suggestions to the world population, because we do know there are people all around the world purchasing children for the sole purpose of abusing them who don't get caught. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's something missing. It seems off that 50% of people who abuse children did so because they couldn't just form a connection with somebody else. Like, how do researchers know that like half aren't pedophiles? So we're going to get into sexology. So there's a few different methods that sexologists use to diagnose somebody as a pedophile. They use what is called the Tanner stages to determine the age range and developmental range in which a potential pedophile prefers So the Tanner stages is basically this chart. It's five stages of development of humans. The chart that I saw when I was doing this research was split right down the middle. There were male figures on the left and female figures on the right. Stage one was at the top and stage five was at the bottom. So what this looks like is in stage one, the figures are completely prepubescent. No signs of development like pubic, facial hair, no breast budding on females or penile enlargements on the male side. And then as you move down the chart, you basically see the developmental stages where females develop larger breasts, males develop larger penises, and then there's body hair that comes along with it. So a person with pedophilia would be more attracted to and fantasize about persons in stage one and two on this chart, where the figures basically have little to no development. So then based on this chart that you just explained, how do they measure which stage a pedophile falls at? This is where things get even more interesting. So the most objective and popular study to determine sexual interests is called penile. I don't know if I'm going to be able to pronounce this right, so bear with me. Plethysmography, otherwise known as philometry. I like philometry better. And let's just break it down even shorter and refer to it as PPG. So what they do in a PPG assessment is they measure the response of the penis to stimuli. So the stimuli is the chart shown in the Tanner stages. So basically they could wrap a band around the penis and they measure any growth when exposed to the stimuli. Or they can do what is called the volumetric method where they put a glass tube at the end of the penis to measure air output as the result of an erection. And the article I read said that the volumetric method was more useful when they're diagnosing a non-admitter or people who try to hide their sexual attraction. I don't know what to say. (laughs) Oh, I didn't fully read all this. (laughs) Is this the first 
last time you're I hearing it. I up until that, and then I was like, <laughs> <laughs> putting my comments in. Oh my gosh. I know it's very explicit. Um, okay, so. Okay, I have left Isabel speechless. Well, this is what happens when, you know, we don't prepare our responses in advance. <laughs> have nothing to say to this. She doesn't know what to say. She doesn't know what to think. And that's kind of how I was when I first read this article. In reality, I did hear about this first on a podcast. So that's how I knew to go back and look into this. But the whole thing is just mind boggling to think that they do these types of studies and research on, I guess, volunteers or just. I was going to say, that's a really good point. Like there's, you know, this is all a lot of the commentary about this is very heavily geared towards male perpetrators. But what about the women? It's really only effectively used on males because they can measure if a man gets a boner when they look at images of prepubescent children. I don't really think there is one developed for women. So I think how they would look at possible female pedophiles is they have all these other tests. So, so they'll do like self-reporting studies on the preference, which again, that's always difficult because people who have pedophilia may recognize that it is wrong to abuse a child in any way. So they might be in neglection of their own sexual preferences. So some other methods are where they'll track eye movements and pupil dilation when their subjects are shown imagery. So if you show a person that Tanner stage diagram and you track their eye movement, the theory is that if you have a sexual preference for something, you're going to look at those images longer than you would something that you don't have preference towards. So a pedophile may look at images one and two longer than they would look at three, four, and five, and their pupils would dilate. Oh, that's interesting. I figured like the pupil dilation, but I didn't realize like the gaze would also like last longer too. Yeah, I mean, I guess it makes sense when you think about it. Like if you're out and about, if there's somebody that's just super beautiful or super handsome, you're you just going to stare at them. Mm -hmm. Not to be a creep, but you're, you're going to notice they're in the room and you'll look at them longer than you'll look at the, the average Joe. Right. All right. So now that we have laid that very interesting foundation for what pedophiles are. I learned a lot. I'm happy you did. This is a learning platform. Um, so I think it's also important to discuss potential ways in which people may become pedophiles. Become pedophiles? Can we say that? Honestly, I, I'm really not sure if we can say that, but I don't have any other way of phrasing what I want to dive into. So please bear with me again. And I hope that I make some sense to you and our listeners in just a few moments. All right, let's hear it. I'm listening. <laughs> you have my. <laughs> so to start, when I first started doing research on human trafficking and sexual exploitation, our boss, Elisa, pointed me in the direction of a body of research conducted by Dr. Donald Hilton, Jr. 
He's a neurosurgeon in Texas, and he's contributed to research on sex and pornography addiction. You have brought up his name before. Did you uh, end up reading a lot of his work? Yes, so I did get to read some of his articles, and I'm not going to go too far into the papers that I've read by him, but I do want to bring a tiny little tidbit of his work to this conversation because I think there's a connection here. All right, let's see what she got. As I mentioned, Dr. Hilton has done research on sex and porn addiction, and he's a neurosurgeon. So the few papers that I did get to read are all about addiction and the physical changes that addictions have on the brain itself. These addictions can be drug addictions, eating addictions, and even addictions to sex. So without going into all the scientific terms and processes, his work supports that sex and pornography can be addictive as a natural process. Okay, so what does this have to do with pedophilia? All right, like I said, bear with me. We're going to get there, but we're going to focus right now on pornography as an addiction. So porn acts as a visual pheromone. It's a representation of our mating instincts as human beings. And the difficulty in discussing porn as an addicting substance is that it's not a drug that we put into our body. It's not alcohol. It's not cigarettes, etc. But it does trigger the pleasure and reward system in the brain. So think of it like catching a buzz from alcohol or a buzz from a cigarette or a vape that induces a euphoric effect. Well, and it is, you know, one of those things where too, they, they find that when you're exposed to it, you get numb to it. And so you need something like more, more violent, more aggressive um, in terms of porn. So I can see I can see the link between like addiction and porn. And just like when people use drugs to get high, there is a portion of the drug using population that might seek out that higher high. So they'll seek harder substances to introduce those highs. So if one drug is chill and mellow and it has an effect on your body, but maybe you're looking for something more. Even if it's just once or twice, you can control it. You're not worried about getting addicted. It actually creates a mental addiction with drugs that can turn into a physical one. But that depends on what types of drugs people are using. People start to use drugs to get dopamine boosts, to feel better about themselves, to be on that higher high level above themselves. And this same thing can happen with people who watch porn. They're seeking that higher high of porn. Like you mentioned, it's something harder from soft porn to hard porn. Are you following me? A little bit. I'm, st I'm waiting for the link to pedophilia. Okay. Okay. I, I promise I'm getting there. But I'm going to go on the record right now and state that not everybody who watches porn is addicted to it. And not everybody who watches porn is a terrible, bad, evil person. I'm making that clear right now. But there are people who get addicted and they have to chase a higher high like a drug addict does, but they do this with porn. And so is that then 
coworkers, some people who are addicted to porn when they might seek out like child porn. Yes. Because I've heard that, you know, some of the concerns that people and researchers have with porn is that it gets it's gotten more and more violent. But I guess I never really thought about people then going and actually like looking into child porn. I always thought it was just like more something more violent and aggressive. And that is definitely an outlet. Um, Some of this research that I'm mentioning suggests that the addiction to porn results in people becoming desensitized to the kind of porn they start watching. So over time, they're not turned on by Playboy magazines and soft porn videos. So they'll develop these curiosities that lead to searches of hardcore porn. And eventually, not with everybody, but this can happen. It's the hard versions of porn that just don't do it for them anymore. And they get these compulsions to watch, quote unquote, barely legal porn, maybe starring an 18 year old because they're barely legal. And then that will just stop doing it for them. And they'll say, I'll watch a 15 year old just once. It's only going to be once. I'll watch a 15 year old. And then it becomes so severe that they can't control those compulsions and they end up watching child pornography, which that term is so terrible in itself to say child pornography. It's child sexual abuse videos. That's what it is. It should not be out there for anybody's pleasure. So, and I don't know if anything has touched on this um, that you were like specifically reading, but then, so are people who are watching this type of porn, are they, is it that they eventually become so desensitized and then become pedophiles? Or is it something that people are born with? Like, where does this desire come from? So I definitely can't speak on where it comes from, but I do think, you know, the research that we talked about earlier is that people are pedophiles. There are pedophiles out in the world who have never abused a child because they understand that it's, it's wrong and it's bad. But then there are people who might just be your everyday person that they start watching this porn and then they become so desensitized and they trickle further and further down the rabbit hole where I think they develop these pedophilic attractions to children. So I did watch this documentary. It's called Operation Two Saint. It's about Operation Underground Railroad, which is another nonprofit in the anti-human trafficking space. And what they do is they travel all around the world and they rescue children from human trafficking rings. And they man who is the founder, his name is Tim Ballard. And there was a clip of him in this documentary explaining just this, where he is basically interrogating these perpetrators who are out buying children once they are detained. And he says, what led you here? And so many times they say it was this pornography addiction that led them down this hole into watching child pornography. And then they had the ability to go out and purchase children. Wow. So it sounds like it's some kind of like, I'm sure there's several different types of like risk factors, but there's some type of exposure and then mixed with some type of opportunity. Right. It's almost like it becomes, 
I don't know if it's the right word to say, but like a social contagion where people watch it, people are normal for watching it, but then they become addicted to it and they fall down into these dark corners of the internet. And then there's this whole world and they end up masturbating to child abuse. So it's definitely a mix of factors because it's such normal people. I think in that documentary, they were saying it's just everyday men and women, like lawyers, politicians, doctors, businessmen, just normal people who have families. Yeah. And it can absolutely be, you know, like you just said, there's people that you would never expect. People with careers and families, um, which makes it harder because we have those stereotypes of what we think perpetrators might look like. Um, it can be harder to find people. Well, that was a very educational breakdown on pedophilia and to porn and addiction and some of the ways that people become pedophiles. And I think child sexualization and exploitation is almost at the point today, it's just shown on advertisements and on TV almost like it's nothing. And so, I mean, the exposure that is coming out is huge and shocking. You know, we talked about pedophilia for a little bit and really kind of what I want you to remember is, you know, research suggests that about 50% of the people that abuse children are pedophiles and supposedly the other 50% aren't. You know, some research suggests, well, it's people who just can't get it anywhere else. But we want to look at the way that society has perpetuated and allowed for child sexualization and the role that that has played. And we're going to go through some examples. Yes, we are going to move the discussion right along. Um, I've talked a lot. So thank you for sitting through all that bearing with me. Um, Do you want to get us started on this next part on what sexualization of children looks like outside of pedophilia and pornography? Yes. So sexualizing children is basically placing children into adult roles. Um, It's placing adult attributes on a child's body and then assigning meaning to it. Uh, Statements like, you know, that outfit looks slutty and look at those booty shorts. You couldn't find something longer. Uh, These comments are definitely not made because somebody views the child as sexual uh, beings, but they are often made out of fear, a fear of children becoming violated. Yes, and I'm sure we could all agree, those of us uh, growing up as girls, that these comments are probably more common than anybody would really like to admit. And the sad thing is, like you mentioned, they're really just made out of fear when we're growing up because our parents or aunts or uncles, they don't want anybody to look at us as a slut or as a sexual object. But without intention, it's inflicting this damage into us and our mindsets every time we pick out an outfit because we don't want to be sexualized and we don't want to be looked at like that based on the pair of shorts we wear that day. Well, well, you see a lot of stories, though, too, of, you know, the different like dress codes at schools and how, 
you know, there's different, like girls can't wear spaghetti straps uh, or there's certain um, rules in terms of like how long their shorts can be and like girls getting dress coded for all these different things. And people are saying, you know, well, why are we punishing, you know, girls for some of these outfits that they're wearing that they could normally just wear everyday life and nobody really would think anything of it. They're saying, oh, you know, it's going to distract boys. Um, it'll keep the boys from learning. And it's like, well, why are we focusing so much on young girls' bodies while they're in school? Right. If anything, the dress code violations and that whole process is going to distract the teacher from teaching and the classroom from learning and that child being given a dress code violation because that teacher has to stop the class or whatever and you know call out the student tell them what they're wearing is somehow inappropriate and send them to the office call their parents disrupt the parents work day all because of something maybe that's just a spaghetti strap and a shoulder showing right and i mean and there's definitely something to be said about dressing professionally in certain spaces but when you're talking about, you know, school, somewhere where kids have to go for eight hours every single weekday, I mean, something like spaghetti straps. It's excessive, basically. I think if you're going to put those dress codes in place, make the kids all wear uniforms and then there's no distractions there. That's a good point, too. Although, let me tell you, I did not like having to wear a uniform when I was in school. Neither did I. I had to wear uniforms for a long time. And then when the school got rid of them, it was great because you're like, oh, no more uniforms. Like, this is awesome. But there were also those like dress code things. If a girl were to wear leggings or yoga pants, their shirt had to cover their butt because yoga pants were clearly too distracting, even though you could wear a pair of skinny jeans and your butt didn't have to be covered by your shirt, even though it's arguably the same pant just different material well and I guess really what it is is also there seems to be more rules in terms of dress codes for girls and I mean to be fair I mean with all the like with the clothing that is available these days it is I mean so many clothes are sold to girls that are more revealing and so you know obviously it is important to have like certain like clothes in place but it seems like it's so heavily geared towards, you know, what girls are wearing. Yeah, um, it basically, we end up again, sexualizing girls specifically without meaning to, but we still do anyway. And it kind of almost goes back to victim blaming in a super common, basic form, whether they were victim of something or not. It's like, why are you wearing that? And why do you think it's okay to wear that here? Yes, it does. And I mean, it's so weird that this can all kind of come around in full circle and everything that people say or do to try, you know, like, quote unquote, help children and girls specifically causes this kind of damage and can lead us to believe uh, we are to become victims just based on the clothes that we wear or the fact that, you know, we went out shopping by ourselves or even, you know, for those of us, you know, we were living alone like, we should know better. Yeah, exactly. It literally just all came back around. And I feel like this is going to be a recurring 
discussion as we go through and talk about some of this stuff. Other places that we see sexualization is in the products, clothes like we discussed, underwear, perfumes, colognes that are marketed towards all of us. So sexualization by definition occurs when individuals are regarded as sex objects and are evaluated in terms of their physical characteristics and their sexiness. But I think we can agree that children should never be viewed as sexy or have any level of sexiness to them. As we just discussed, we definitely don't live in a perfect world where adults are strictly attracted to other adults and we just let kids be kids. That world just doesn't exist. Well, one of the biggest things too, I think, is like the discussion about makeup and like when girls start wearing, like I started wearing makeup, I think I was like 13. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a pretty common age or even now maybe girls start wearing makeup younger. But I mean, you are adding like stuff to your face to make you look more uh, like blush. So like like blush or uh, like red lipstick. And the whole like the whole thing around that is to make you look because those are things that happen to your face becomes more flush after you have sex. And so it's to help you look more like sexually desirable. And that's something I, you know, obviously I never knew as a kid. I learned as an adult. And I was like, I I guess I never really, I never thought about makeup in that way. And I never thought about it in this like sexualized like sense. But now I'm learning like more and more about it. And I'm like, you're literally putting stuff on your face to make you look sexually desirable. Yeah, I actually never heard that before. And again, never thought of it in that way because when you're a kid and you get, you know, play makeup or you break into your mom's makeup, you just want to see if you could put it on and look like mom or look like your aunt. But it's so normal. And like the way that media pushes it out and advertises it is like, you know, you should be wearing makeup. Everybody's wearing makeup. And it's like all of these models have this, you know, they have these makeup brands. Do you want to hear a funny story? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know if we can put this in here, but I'm going to tell it just in case. Okay. My, my boyfriend calls those like fake eyelashes. He calls them cum catchers. <gasps> because, <laughs> and there's a reason I promise the reason why those those were made by prostitutes to protect their eyes when they were working from stuff getting in their eyes. Shut up! You're lying. Nope. Literally, I was. I know. I never knew that until literally just a couple of months ago. I'm never gonna be able to look at a pair of falsies again, ever. Yeah. Hey, it was pretty resourceful. That is resourceful. Good for them back in the day. Oh my god. Yeah, that's where it came from. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's where it came from. <laughs> Wait, do we have a drum button? No. Do we not? We need a bigger soundboard. Yes, we do. <laughs> Everybody subscribe so we can get soundboard. Please do. Oh my god. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. That's actually hysterical i never knew that fun fact thank you shout out isabel's boyfriend 
Um, okay, so bringing it back, you know, um, I can watch a million get ready with me videos and people doing their makeup. I can't do makeup on my my own face, but there's just something about watching those videos that I just love to just sit around and do, especially on TikTok because they're so short. Very satisfying. But th they are satisfying. That's it. But if you look at the comments, you know, you're always going to have those people that are like, guys don't actually find this attractive. Why are you putting it on your face? So like, that's the opposite of, you know, blush is actually to represent being flush after having sex. So like in reality, they maybe our pure primal instincts are attracted to it. Maybe not the smoky eye. I don't know if you have any context on that. If that's like a, a sex object. Not that I know of, but now I'm going to go look. <laughs> yeah, I think that's um, the next task. That, that's got to be. Don't worry. Everybody, I'm going to ruin every piece of makeup for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be, we'll have to put that as a new segment. We did blush and we did falsies. <laughs> I really have nothing against makeup. I wear, you know, the basic amount. Great. We're not all makeup artists and we can't be, okay? We're not gifted. No, way to go for the people who can. Exactly. But yeah, that's, so there's that. There, there, I'm, I'm done with the makeup because I don't, we're going to, we're going to come back to this. Well, and so I think overall, the whole point about talking about makeup and child sexualization is that one, there's a whole discussion about when, you know, when people should start wearing makeup and that they're wearing makeup younger and younger and what the original intent of makeup was it was for it's for like a sexual purpose and so why is it something that we're giving to young kids and you know when you see kids wearing you know modeling with makeup on it makes them look older and it portrays them in a sexual sense mm -hmm. and so that is one factor that has become so prevalent to contribute to the sexualization of children it's you were trying to make them look older like kids kids look older these days oh my god yes they do like i remember okay when we were kids we all went through this weird style phase when you're like 10 years old okay we looked weird we were so awkward and it was awkward yes and but now kids don't have that anymore no i've seen so many relatable videos online where it's <laughs> You know, millennials are the, we're older Gen Z. We're like, like right on the cusp. Right. We're like more millennials than we are Gen Z, but we're technically Gen Z. So it's like me when I was in middle school, you know, making these stupid videos with our friends wearing clothes that don't match or fit well. And then it's like middle schoolers dolled up, you know, wearing crop tops and cute outfits that like, I genuinely like, but they're dancing and shaking it. And I'm just like, I was so awkward at this age. How, why do you look my age? I know. So it's definitely a really interesting component. Do you remember not too long ago, there was that whole thing with Balenciaga ad. It featured children holding these dolls that were actually wearing bondage clothing. And then there was... um that Netflix movie about that the dancing kids and it was called cuties. I remember seeing so many articles and controversy about that movie. 
do you want to get into it? Because you actually looked into it way more than I did about what Cuties was. The only thing that I really saw from it was, so the intent behind the movie was to bring awareness to child sexualization. But the backlash was, in doing so, the film was sexualizing children because it had children doing these, like, sexy revealing dances and wearing these like revealing clothes and so people were watching this and it was almost I don't know hypocritical and the whole the whole point of the movie was lost and people were saying well you know if you wanted to do a a movie a better way might have been to use adult actors um, instead of actual children yeah, it was basically counterproductive in itself because it's like, okay, let's bring awareness. But at the same time, we're going to sexualize these children to make our point. But then it just made people so mad they couldn't even grasp the concept that that was not the message or the intention. I was so shocked that that that, that was on Netflix. I wasn't about to watch it, but I read a lot of articles about it. I didn't watch it either because I didn't want to contribute because I was like, you're sexualizing kids like I'm not going to be a viewer of this right it's crazy but moving further along from these ad campaigns and documentaries that are just so recent there was something I didn't actually know about until I was researching for this part of the episode but did you know that you could buy thong underwear for children there people actually sell child-sized thongs on the internet no I'd never seen never seen that yeah so I don't know I hope I didn't get put on a list for this one because I was reading an article and it talked about people selling like child-sized thongs and I was like there's no way that this actually exists like this article's a fake a fraud so I, I hope I'm not on a list but I googled maybe child underwear or child thongs it took me to sites where I could actually purchase this and that's so messed up because I think everybody can agree that a thong is definitely something that's supposed to be sexy and intimate and 1000% unnecessary for a child to own. Kids need to be kids. They shouldn't be worried about sexy underwear or God forbid a child has underwear lines. I know. Well, and that's the thing too. It's like, are people really that worried? Any child that I know doesn't have a job to go make money to go buy this stuff. So are their parents worried about their underwear lines? Yeah, it just seems like, like where like where was the thought process? Yeah, because I remember even when actually this maybe this will link it together. When I was doing more of this research, I did read this article. It wasn't a research article. It was more kind of like a blog post article. Mm-hmm. And it was somebody who was trying to figure out why children are going for a more mature look with more mature clothes, I guess, underwear, maybe makeup. And there was a department store sales person quoted saying, no, I don't, this is definitely not the exact quote because I don't have the article in front of me, but something like along the lines of saying like children come in here and they tell their parents what they want. If we bring them back to the child section and it's more, say, conservative clothing, the children don't want that. They pull on their mom 
or dad or whoever's with them and they go to another store where they're selling child size clothes of more mature items. Maybe let's just say child crop tops. The children see, let's say their favorite movie star, TikTok dancer or influencer on the internet, on their screens wearing a crop top and they say, I want to look like them. I want to go get a crop top and be just like this person. And well, they wear makeup and lip gloss and I want to go get that makeup and lip gloss because they wear it and they're really pretty and everybody loves them. And I want to be pretty in love too. So the market tailors to these children who are being inspired by these older figures. So they want to be what they see and they just, they want to grow up quicker. So the market tailors it to them so they could keep their sales flowing. Interesting. Well, I mean, too, in movies, a lot of times they have, it's adults playing kids. So, you know, they think they're supposed to look this way, but no, it's, it's a, you know, 30 something year old playing a teenager. There've been so many times where I've watched something where it's a high school setting and I'm like, I did not look like that in high school. Definitely didn't dress like that in high school, but that's what high school is portrayed as today. So it's just such a false representation. All right. This is the last part. And then I'm going to be done on my rants. So we kind of have to talk about this sexualizing children. We've talked about the market movies, advertisements. So obviously we have to talk about porn. So there's porn films out there and I know we've all heard of them that feature characters that are like the naughty little schoolgirl, and they have grown women dressed in child's clothing as if they went to like a preparatory school. And then I know say going out for Halloween when you're old enough to drink and party, there's sexy costumes advertised to people and some of them are naughty little schoolgirl. It's like, I mean, adults are dressing up as kids in a sexual way. Yeah. So like we're, we're like bringing to life those fantasies of dressing adults like that. Saying a, a naughty, a sexy schoolgirl, like schoolgirls are not sexy. They're underage. Right. But that's just been so accepted and like. You don't think about it because it's such a norm until you think about it. And then you're like, this is actually really wrong. Oh, interesting. Right. Because, you know, you're not supposed to kink shame. It also involves like sexualizing children. Where like, it's like to what end? Yeah. Like there has to be some type of line drawn. I mean, we've already gone pretty far, so I don't know how much further we can get. But let's pray that we can't go any further. All right, everybody, you know what time it is. It's time to go ahead and reveal our myth. Only women and girls are victims and survivors of sex trafficking. Now, this is false. Men and boys are also targeted in human trafficking, but they get less attention as victims compared to women and girls. I know we have mentioned this um, in past episodes, but it's important to recognize that men and boys can fall victim too. Often uh, boys and young men within the LGBTQ community are targeted. 
I can totally understand why this is a common myth about human trafficking, because when we think of men and boys, we don't tend to view them as potential victims because of the gender roles that men play in society. You know, they're dominating and they're protective. They can never fall victim. So this is super important to debunk and talk about because men and boys can be victims, and often they are. The United Nations estimates that boys account for 15% of global trafficking victims and men account for 20% of victims. These numbers are from 2021. Yes, thanks for bringing some statistics um, to the reality of the situation. Well, everybody, that is all we have for uh, today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did and that you learned something new to tell your friends, whether it's about the Tanner stages and tests of attraction or histories of makeup, uh, to think of every time you reach for that blush or falsies. I will never look at a pair of falsies the same again. (laughs) (laughs) So everyone, please make sure to leave your questions, comments, and content suggestions at any of our links in the episode description. And please share this podcast with a friend or family member who may enjoy these conversations as much as you hopefully do. We're on Instagram as Traffic Jam Podcast and Moms and Security. And you can also follow the Misco pages on Twitter and LinkedIn. And we recently learned that we have a Facebook page too. So check those out and we hope to see you back here in two weeks. Mm-hmm.